The Morning Press, a BrainIron.com production. Here's 11 minutes or so of news for today, Thursday, February 1st, 2024. The United States Senate held hearings on Wednesday in which the CEOs of social media giants, including Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter X, endured the lectures and questions of senators on a range of concerns about how their products and services impact the lives of children and young people. The flogging of social media CEOs has become something of an annual tradition on Capitol Hill, and this year's focus on issues of child exploitation gave senators an even higher high horse than usual from which to do their grandstanding. With the parents of children who have suffered harm or even committed suicide after becoming enmeshed in the services sitting in the gallery, some of them holding up photographs of their deceased children throughout the hearing. The senators expressed outrage across a broad swath of concerns, including the spread of child sexual abuse imagery on the platforms, the bullying, harassment, and predation that many children suffer online, and the fact that the companies have been far more interested in acquiring young users and increasing engagement than they have been concerned with assuring children's safety. Though this was a decidedly bipartisan flaying of the gathered social internet luminaries, it's not clear what legislation could result from such widespread worry. The Kids Online Safety Act has bipartisan support, but even if passed and signed into law, would face immediate challenges on constitutional grounds, with many critics saying that the bill as written is far too broad, and so broadly and vaguely defines harm in a way that would lead to censorship, privacy violations, and ultimately backfire in its stated goals. A brief editorial aside. I am the parent of two young children. I empathize with many of the concerns people have about social media's influence on their young children, but I can't say that I sympathize with them, because my kids are not on social media. They don't have phones. They don't even really have devices of their own. When they're interacting with a screen, it's the television or handheld Nintendo games that we all share. We don't even allow them free reign on YouTube, never mind any of the more self-consciously personal social media platforms. They aren't yet teens, so I haven't had to deal with all that comes with that. And I don't mean to condemn or judge those parents who do allow their children more latitude with devices and some sort of personal identity presence online. And while I recognize that the companies bear some responsibility for the harm that their products might cause, especially to the extent that they design those products to be as unputdownable as possible, fill them with a never-ending sea of content, and then throw their arms up in frustrated exasperation at how hard monitoring all that content is, I also can't help but wonder why we seem to have so widely accepted the inevitability of their ubiquity in our lives and in the lives of our children. Everybody needs a phone, is what the people at Verizon and AT&T and Samsung and Apple and Google want us to believe, but that doesn't make it true. The convenience of constant, instant availability of every single person on the planet with whom you might want to communicate, including your loved ones, has a cost. And that cost is not just whatever it is you're paying per month to your cell phone service provider. And every installed app on that phone is a choice, no matter the force of the weight of social pressure to be included, to not be missing out behind it. And then there's the choice to unlock the phone and open the app after that. 
and to scroll and to scroll and to scroll. Each choice gets harder, a little less free, as the incentives for grabbing and keeping your attention get more lucrative, and the apps are all in competition for your eyeballs and thumbs, and we train them through our behavior to get better and better at securing that attention. I don't entirely trust myself to make the best choices when it comes to my phone. I often feel beholden to it, subject to its allure, at least mildly addicted to whatever it is it's doing to my brain. So there is absolutely no chance I'm about to put one in my kids' hands. My current plan is to figure out a way to wean myself off from its necessity and prominence in my daily life so that I'll be somewhat less of a hypocrite when I refuse to accede to their teenage demands for one in a few years. This is probably a plan that will fail. I recognize this. I don't think this is just neo-Luddism. I think it's probably the case that the way we currently live with our devices is not a healthy way of being in the world. I do not think we are meant to be as constantly trackable and accessible as we currently are. I think it is bad for the brain in ways we haven't even yet fully figured out how to ask about, even if an argument can be made that it has undeniable social advantages and conveniences. I suspect that these devices represent a sort of evolutionary dead end, and that like most evolutionary dead ends, we did because we could, not because we should. And like all dead ends, it is only inevitable and ubiquitous until we walk back out of the cul-de-sac and see where else the street goes. It does not require a brave revolutionary spirit or even a particularly tyrannical parental attitude to deny one's child access to something one suspects will do them harm. It simply requires parenting. I don't trust the CEOs of Nestle, Pepsi, and Kraft Heinz to keep my children's bodies healthy, and I certainly don't think Mark Zuckerberg or the CEO of TikTok is operating in their best interest either. The objection is, it shouldn't be so hard to keep them safe online. The world can be made safer. These companies should be held to account for putting profits ahead of safety. To which I say, yes, sure, okay, by all means, do that work. But it is obvious to me that for the foreseeable future, there is more risk than reward in letting my children have free reign online, fenced in only by the weak guardrails installed and maintained by regulators and companies whose interests are directly oppositional to what I see as my kids' best interests. This doesn't require some new legislative regime that will likely only benefit those companies who have already entrenched themselves in our lives by monetizing so much of our attention, making it harder for newcomers to disrupt the market with better, less harmful products. It requires only that people follow what they suspect to be true, that these products are bad for us and for our children, and that ceasing to use them would be good and is actually quite simple. The House of Representatives on Wednesday passed, with broad bipartisan support, a $78 billion bill that would expand the child tax credit, expand a tax subsidy for new low-income housing construction, and restore some expired provisions of corporate tax breaks from the 2017 tax law. The bill is ostensibly paid for by the ending of a pandemic-era tax break for employers that has proven to be a magnet for tax fraud, but watchdog organizations believe the bill is certain to cost more than is currently being claimed by lawmakers and will add to the deficit and debt in years to come. 
Speaker Mike Johnson brought the bill to the floor using a procedure that made it necessary to secure a two-thirds majority for passage in order to bypass certain Republicans who would have blocked the bill from even coming up for a vote. It passed easily, 357 to 70, over the objections of both far-right and progressive factions. The bill will face Republican opposition in the Senate, and it's not clear if it will make it to President Biden's desk. In brief international news, CBS News is reporting that the United States will engage in a series of strikes against Iranian targets in Iraq and Syria in the coming days, in response to the drone attack on Sunday that killed three and injured 40 more U.S. service members in Jordan, a drone that the U.S. claims was manufactured in Iran, according to Reuters. That attack, among a series of others in the region, was carried out by Iran-backed militant groups, and while the Biden administration is not expected to strike within Iran, Iranian personnel and facilities outside the country will be targeted. Iran has denied any direct involvement in the drone strike, but Islamic Resistance in Iraq, a sort of umbrella organization made up of multiple militias that are believed to have received arms and training from the Iranians, claimed responsibility for the strike. Separately, though no doubt at least somewhat relatedly, Iran has reportedly substantially downsized its deployment of senior Revolutionary Guard officers in Syria, hoping to avoid being drawn into wider direct conflict with the Israelis and the Americans after the retaliatory strikes begin. At a summit in Brussels, the European Union on Thursday voted to provide more than $50 billion in financial support for Ukraine over the coming years, a decision to help prop up the war-torn economy as it is about to enter its third year of open conflict with Russia. Hungary had threatened to veto the deal, but pre-summit meetings apparently assuaged whatever concerns their prime minister, Viktor Orban, had about the funding. It's not clear what concessions, if any, he secured in exchange for his vote, though he claimed in a video posted to Facebook that a review mechanism and assurances that money the EU owes to Hungary would not end up in Ukraine made the outcome a victory for his country. The United States Congress is still attempting to come to a compromise on financial aid for Ukraine, so securing this influx of cash from the Europeans was important to Ukrainian economic stability. And in the Far East, the Philippines has announced that it will purchase its first-ever submarines as part of the third phase in its ongoing military modernization project, as it seeks to be able to defend its claims to sovereignty over parts of the South China Sea, to which China also lays claim. A fun game I used to play was to try to come up with the best three-song runs on my favorite albums. Tonight Tonight. Jelly Belly and Zero on Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness, for example. Ziggy Stardust, Suffragette City, and Rock and Roll Suicide on Bowie's The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. They came on so loaded, man.
any three-song run chosen at random on any of the surprisingly productive Goo Goo Dolls' 14 studio albums. I'll let you use your imagination. In the completely opposite spirit of that, here is a look at this day in cursed history for February 1st and a three-year run from 2002 to 2004. After we've put together a bunch of cursed three-year runs, maybe we can choose a favorite. In 2002, on February 1st, Islamist militants in Pakistan killed Wall Street Journal journalist Daniel Pearl, who was kidnapped while on a reporting trip to investigate links between the so-called shoe bomber Richard Reed and al-Qaeda. The murderers videotaped the killing and beheading of Pearl after forcing him to give a confession of his Judaism and condemnation of American foreign policy. On February 1, 2003, the space shuttle Columbia disintegrated upon re-entry to Earth's atmosphere following a two-week mission in space, killing all seven astronauts on board and leading to a two-year pause in the shuttle program. The shuttle had suffered damage on launch when it accelerated through falling foam insulation that had broken off from the shuttle's external tank, causing damage to the heat shield tiles on the left wing. A damage assessment while the crew was in orbit had concluded, incorrectly, that the debris had not caused enough damage to be a safety concern. The morning press will spare you the gory details of the astronauts' demise, as this is a family show. Speaking of family shows, on this day in history, cursed three-year run edition, February 1st, 2004, during the halftime show performance at Super Bowl 38, Justin Timberlake and Janet Jackson collaborated on what would be called a wardrobe malfunction, in which Timberlake, upon singing the final line of his song, Rock Your Body, removed a tearaway section of Jackson's outfit to reveal her bare breast, adorned with a sunburst nipple decoration. The final line of Rock Your Body is... The incident was a massive cultural controversy, and, along with quite negative career consequences for Jackson, led to the NFL going with classic rock acts for five of the next six Super Bowl halftime shows, the lone exception being Prince in 2007, who put on, objectively speaking, the best Super Bowl halftime show in history. That's This Day in History for February 1st, Cursed Three-Year Run Edition, 2002-2004. Now, here's a look at the weather. There will be five Thursdays this February, something that only occurs when a leap year begins on a Monday, as it did this year. The last time there were five Thursdays in February was 1996. I suspect... I will see it at least one more time in 2052, if all goes reasonably well for me, and I would be very pleased to see it once more after that, at 97 years old, in 2080. This happens once every 28 years, for reasons that are simple enough to understand if you think about it for a minute. Thursday is the ideal day to have five of, in February, in my opinion, and Tuesday is the worst day to have five of in February. If there is a downside to all these February Thursdays, it is that this sort of year also provides us with the latest possible date for Thanksgiving, which will fall on November 28th this year. Leap years that start on a Saturday 
have five January Mondays, followed by five February Tuesdays, followed by a March and April that stretch on for six whole months, believe it or not, making it easily the worst sort of calendar year. But not this year. 2024 is ideal. I will not elaborate on the issue further, nor take any follow-up questions. That's the weather from here. How's it look out your window? The Morning Press is a production of the BrainIron.com multinational media empire. Please direct comments and complaints to BrainIronPodcast at gmail.com. For a transcript of today's episode and links to the stories referenced, find The Morning Press at brainiron.substack.com, where, if you would like to support this and the other podcasting and blogging endeavors of the brainiron.com media empire, you can also become a paying subscriber. If you can think of anyone else who might enjoy whatever it is we're up to around here, please consider sharing. Thanks, and barring the sudden onset of the inevitable, we'll talk to you tomorrow. The proceeding was created with 100% human content.